in this episode. Yesterday, December the 13th, at around 8.30 p.m. Baghdad time, United States military forces captured Saddam Hussein alive. I speak with Eric Maddox, the man who located the fugitive despot, Saddam Hussein. I'm extremely proud that I was able to be the interrogator who tracked down Saddam. We discuss his extraordinary experiences in Iraq, the controversy surrounding use of so-called enhanced interrogation by other operatives, and Eric's own much more successful and humane approach to his work. But Dan, I'm telling you, there's a process of communication that unlocks this level of trust. Iraq's behavior demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort, to disarm as required by the international community. Those opposed to this course of action share my detestation of Saddam. During more than two decades in power, Saddam Hussein had initiated wars with two neighboring countries, violently oppressed dissidents, used chemical weapons on his own citizens, and enriched himself, while increasing numbers of his countrymen fell into poverty. In 2003, under the auspices of enforcing UN resolutions, the United States and its allies invaded Iraq. While much public focus had been placed on the search for ultimately seemingly non-existent weapons of mass destruction, General Tommy Franks, who led the operation, stated that of the eight objectives of war, the first goal was to remove Saddam Hussein from power. In less than three weeks, that objective had seemingly been accomplished, as Baghdad fell. But Saddam and his lieutenants were still at large, hiding in the country as an insurgency unfolded. The United States produced a list of wanted fugitives, numbered like a pack of cards, as Eric Maddox explained to me. It was Saddam Hussein, he was the ace of spades, along with everybody on the deck of cards. The Joint Special Operations Command was tasked for that primary mission. They didn't have interrogators. They, going after high-value targets, there wasn't really like a long-purpose detention for individuals. As they were going weeks and weeks and then months and they weren't able to capture Saddam, they started to realize gathering intelligence from prisoners might be of value. But they also, then there was a team, a Delta Force team in Tikrit, Iraq. That's Saddam's hometown. And they wanted a particular interrogator that would be able to go with them on their raids. So that sort of background would lead itself to someone who was in the infantry. So they kind of went to the army and said, hey, look at all the interrogators. See who's got an infantry background. And I had an infantry background and I was a graduate of ranger school. So they decided that interrogator would be most qualified to be out in the field with them. So even though I was a Chinese Mandarin linguist, and even though I'd never actually done an interrogation, my infantry background was what most attracted them to me. So you were there to conduct interrogations, but you actually went out on raids during which these suspects were captured. That must have been pretty terrifying. I had the benefit that of everyone who does raids in the military, they do them the best. It was quite professional. 
but it's very intense. It was the, when I arrived, it was July. So it's extraordinarily hot. It's very fast paced. And when you get inside a house, you know, your biggest fear, I never really worried. I don't think anybody else was really worried that you were going to get ambushed or hurt on the way to the raid. And these guys are so good. I wasn't really worried about them being a problem on the raid. It was the withdrawal because everyone knew you were there. All the bad guys knew you were at this house. And you had to go back to your base so they could kind of set up an ambush. So my interrogations had to be very fast. You didn't want to waste time. There were no uniforms. There was no ID. It wasn't like, hey, show me your driver's license. And the people who were wanted probably knew they were wanted, and they're not going to tell you who they are. So in a very short period of time, talking about 15 minutes, you had to do interrogations, figure out who's who, and then who you were going to take back to the prison. So beyond just the maybe the physical dangers, it was a very difficult chore. Saddam, as we now know, was hiding in Tikrit. Were the people surrounding him and protecting him the Iraqi military? Because it was his hometown, he used his close relatives, and even not so close relatives, to make up his bodyguards. And he had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. So I wouldn't call those military personnel, but they could handle themselves. They knew how to maintain safety. They knew how to use weapons, but they also had quite a bit of authority in that area, in the Sunni Triangle. The recruitment process was either family members through this bodyguard network. I mean, there were hundreds of them. And then what it turned out to be was individuals who had had a family member that got killed, been injured, been wronged in the early months of the war. A lot of young kids, 20, 25, who probably wouldn't have been involved, but with the invasion, they lost somebody, they got upset, and they joined. When you brought people back for interrogations, what were those initial conversations like? Presumably, having just come back from a war, some of these people were probably far from willing interviewees. If you could imagine... You're captured. You're in your hometown, your home country. An enemy country invades. You're captured. You do not want to talk. You don't believe in what they're doing. They invaded. So by the nature of what they're doing there, you you assume they mean you harm. There's not a lot of cultural connections. It's not just they don't want to help. They assume whatever you want to know, they shouldn't tell you. Understandably, in the circumstances then, A lot of the people you captured were determined not to talk or provide any useful information. So as an interrogator, how did you get past that and actually manage to extract the intelligence that helped you to find Saddam? So what I realized is when it comes to communication with people, anyone, you can look at prisoners, but just really in any communication, if you will do a good job of listening to not the message that they're putting out front, what they think they're trying for you to hear. But they also use words and terms and phrases. It's almost a subconscious test. They're trying to figure out, are you willing to even listen to hear what it means to be me? Is that even a possibility that this interrogator would consider to understand my perception, not agree with it, but to even seek to understand it. 
And if you can do that, what I realize is inside the mind, this unlocking of a level of consideration because people want trust. They, they want somebody they can trust. And once they realize that I'm not here to punish them for anything they've done, I really don't have anything against them. I don't have anything for them. I don't have anything against them. I just got a job to do. And if they help me do my job, why would I punish them for that? And if I get them out, why wouldn't I? You interviewed hundreds of detainees. Was it a question of sifting through information, just trying to weave something together? Or was it more a case that suspect A gives information that leads to B, that leads to C? So it's definitely A leads to B to leads to C. But Dan, if you do 300 interrogation, it wasn't one leads to two leads to all up to 300, right? That's not the way it works. So there were probably 180. They could have led to some A to B to C to D, but it didn't lead us to Saddam. But there were about 120 that would lead to A to B to C to D. And a lot of those, a lot of that was not an upward chain. Many Mm -hmm. times it went sideways in a network. And a couple of times they even have to go down because there wasn't a direct path to find Saddam. So Mm -hmm. you had to take whatever path was available. So oftentimes, you know, you try to go higher in authority. So Saddam was captured in December. I would say by October, we realized the path to Saddam doesn't really go through the fighters themselves. It didn't even go through the sub-commanders. It was going through individuals that were one step away from them. So, for instance, if an individual was responsible for the safe houses of Saddam's closest bodyguard. The individual responsible for the houses maybe wouldn't talk to me, but his oldest son would, right? His oldest son's like 28 years old. There were some people that were so loyal, I couldn't get them to talk. But there were people who looked at the situation and said, my dad shouldn't be involved in this. It's not my dad's fault. You're making him get involved. I love my dad. I want my dad to have a life of freedom. So I'll help you tell you what I know about my dad. You kind of had to step outside the insurgency lane many times because there were people who knew everything. They just weren't involved. When Saddam was caught, I remember Dan rather famously announcing on CBS that he was hiding in a spider hole, sort of cubby under the ground. Was this a place where he'd been for a long time or had he been moving from place to place? Well, at the time when we were hunting Saddam, I had no idea what he was doing. I didn't know where he was. I didn't really know if the people that I was going towards that I thought knew where he was actually knew. Once we got really close, right, I I knew. I said, there's this bodyguard. I know this bodyguard knows where he is. And we had the driver of the bodyguard. So if if Saddam's captured on December 13th, the driver of the last bodyguard was captured on December 1st. So I felt like for 13 days, I was really dialed in. He was not moving. And come to find out, he really hadn't been moving. I think maybe he'd moved once since July. I think he was in a location, and then he moved to where we captured him. But he wasn't living in a spider hole. He was living at the farmhouse, 
and then he had a network of communicators that would let him know if U.S. forces ever went into that area, and he would just go down in spider hole, and then the owner of the house would kind of just cover it with sand. It's like a spider. Was there a particular individual or individuals who were real game changers in terms of providing you with the information that you needed? I would say there were about nine key figures, but the bodyguard's driver was the guy. He was the number one. His name's Bossom Latif. He was the the one that really pushed us the furthest. And then ultimately, it was the bodyguard who took us to Saddam. So these eight or nine that you reference, were they tough nuts to crack? I thought they were tough nuts to crack. I don't know. Maybe somebody else would have thought they were easy, but... I thought they were extremely difficult. I think it helped that I'd been there for so long at this point that I really, they could tell like, okay, this interrogator knows what he's talking about. I can't use misinformation with him. But Dan, I'm telling you, there's a process of communication that unlocks this level of trust when you listen to the words that a person, in this case a prisoner, wants you to hear. It's psychological. It's subconscious. It doesn't have to be mean or kind. I'm never their good buddies, and I'm never mean to them. People always say, you got to be a good listener. you got to be a good listener. Most people don't even know what that means. I didn't know what it meant until I got there, and I realized, this is really hard. But if you listen at an extraordinarily high level and listen for the right thing for them, not because you want to do your own agenda, but if you listen for somebody, it unlocked this level of trust that said, you know what, Mr. Interrogator, I'm going to see what you can do for me. I'm going to see if we can work together. You were trained as a Chinese linguist as opposed to Arabic. So did you have to rely on translators to communicate with the prisoners? And if so, did that make those conversations more difficult in terms of conveying the message you were trying to convey? I, I do not speak Arabic. and They did not speak Chinese or English. Fortunately, I had three linguists at my disposal. When you're with the Joint Special Operations Command, they get all the resources they want. So I always had a translator, which was difficult. You know, they always say, and I believe, 90% of communication is nonverbal. And it's so the prisoner's reading you, right? They're reading your eyes and they're reading your body language, they're reading your sincerity. And then I'm not a highly educated individual, so mm-hmm. I don't speak at a highly professional level. I try to speak at a very basic, maybe somewhere between the fifth to eighth grade level. So as great as my translators were, it wasn't super complicated for them to pull the intent of my message. And once you unlock that level of trust that I indicated before, I call it empathy-based listening, by the way, the prisoner will actually seek to understand you. A lot of times prisoners are going to, they, they're glad there's a communication problem because they don't want to cooperate. So they just lean on that as an excuse. Once you get to a certain level of trust, they'll actually figure out what you're saying. And then they too will communicate to where they want to make sure you understand what they're saying. And I just want to say, just for the record, I didn't know I was looking for this level of communication. 
many people rarely ever experience it. It is, for me, was the key to interrogations. Around the time that you were in Iraq, we saw disturbing images of prisoners being mistreated in Abu Ghraib. We've also heard a lot about the so-called enhanced interrogation, waterboarding and so on. And these techniques, aside from the ethical issues involved, didn't even seem to be effective. What was your approach and why was it effective? So I think that's a great question. I think it's the key question. I wish it would be the primary question that we would look at, right? Because I'm extremely proud that I was able to be the interrogator who tracked down Saddam. But more importantly, I think, wow, but there's a new way. It's a better way to do these interrogations. And I think when you use any ineffective form of communication, you're going to get wrong information. When you use harsh forms of interrogation, and let's say, let's not even go to like the illegal realms, right, of violence and coercion. Let's just say the ones where there's intensity and conflict and confrontation, but you're staying within the legal bounds. The prisoner realizes this guy doesn't have good intent for me. They perceive me as the enemy. It is a Give me information or I'm going to punish you. And you could even legally say, I'm going to punish you for crimes that you've committed. I mean, for the things you've done on the battlefield. You are the enemy. Put yourself in the mindset of the prisoner. Why on earth would you cooperate? Now, you don't want additional incarceration. You don't want to get people you care about captured as well. Why wouldn't you give false information? If you then want to claim as a prisoner claims I'm helping. Here's the information you're looking for. You can make up whatever you want. And if you can put them down a rabbit trail that when they go to a location, it's empty or it's just not useful. Use the prisoner to go, well, I thought they were there when you captured me. I mean, what do you want me to do? I, I'm, I'm not real time. I've been in prison for two or three weeks. It was such plausible deniability now, then, when you go to the harsh interrogation techniques, it doesn't make the information more wrong, but it just increases the likelihood that the prisoner will not cooperate and they'll probably never cooperate. What I also, and again, I'm going to insert this, what I think should be the question is, why would we go to harsh interrogation techniques? Why would we do that? And though the answer is because the normal interrogation techniques do not work. They're ineffective. It is poor training. It is ineffective training. And I didn't think that the interrogators were given the proper training to achieve this mission, yet they were tasked and expected to achieve an extraordinarily difficult mission. I've always said, why aren't we looking at the training? I mean, if, if helicopter pilot training didn't work, that would be a real problem. All the helicopters would crash. Yeah, yet we have this ineffective interrogation training, and we sit there and go, well, that's unfortunate. So based on what you're saying, was your technique ultimately something that you developed yourself through learning on the job as opposed to something that you were trained for? I completely had to learn it on the job. Not only did I have to learn it on the job, Dan, if I talk about, here's what I believe is effective interrogation versus everything in the manual. It is the exact opposite. And I'll give you a quick example, if you don't mind. You have definitely gotten to an area that I am so passionate about and I really, I think so important. 
if you think about even what you see on TV in the movies of interrogations, you get in front of a prisoner, what does the interrogator do? You have no way to talk yourself out of this. Don't lie to me. I know exactly what you've done. Don't even try to, you know what? You're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. You're going to die in this prison. There's nowhere you're going to go. Basically, the entire psychological process is to kill all hope. Kill their hope, and eventually they'll go, I don't have a choice. If I want better life or a better situation for myself, I had better cooperate with this person. Okay, darn it, I will. It's really almost impossible to take away all hope of a person. So my interrogation process was initiate hope, build empowerment, give them the idea that says, hey, this is not the end of the road for you. Now, I don't know where your future looks like, but if you're willing to decide on a future that is outside of an insurgency, I'm going to get you out of here as fast as possible. But that does require a level of cooperation. That does require a level of success resulting from that cooperation for the United States forces. But I am not going to do anything that is going to hurt you or your family or those people you care about. So I'm building as much hope in the mind of somebody who's in a pretty rough situation. And it's a completely opposite to what we were taught to do. But the plan on killing all hope is then say, hopefully they, when they have no hope, will come to a plan B, which is your strategy, what you want from them. And I'm like, I don't think anybody wants to go on somebody else's strategy. I'm going to work on their strategy and I'm going to initiate and empower, ignite their hope. But it has to go through me. I'm the catalyst for their hope. We have had extensive investigations into the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, and we've seen how difficult it is to prosecute individuals who made confessions in these circumstances. And obviously, again, there's the moral, ethical, and legal aspects to this. But how did we end up in a situation where some people were using these kind of approaches? In the defense of the United States military, there was not a program of harsh interrogation techniques. It wasn't like interrogators were secretly taught these harsh techniques. That was not the case. What we did have was interrogation techniques that we would use on our own soldiers who were going through training in case they were being captured, right? So we would have this training for elite soldiers, pilots, and said, hey, if you get captured, you might get interrogated. So we're going to make sure you're ready for that. Well, through that, we developed harsh interrogation techniques. Sometime early on in the war, this idea came around that said, those harsh techniques almost worked on our pilots, our elite soldiers. Let's just use those on the prisoners. We did a great job. Starting at about 2004, of just completely removing those from the system, saying that went down a road that was really bad. We didn't realize this thing got completely out of control. What I don't think we did is do a good job of saying, what's the better way? What we said was, you know what? We're just going to use the old techniques, even though they suck and do not work at all. We're going to stay very strict to this. We didn't really do the great research to go, what does work? Now, I will say, I love that the fact that the Department of Defense said, Eric, we like your technique. And we're going to even let you kind of build and be a part of this team of interiors that use that technique. 
But going spreading that through the entire military, that's a lot of work. And they didn't do it. It didn't spread as much as I felt like it should have. It was discipline. Getting back to Saddam, having pinned him down, you left Iraq shortly before the raid. From a military perspective, was it just a case of, right, your job is done, now it's time for you to go home? I would say I had completed my work because the bodyguard, his name was Mohammed Ibrahim, he's the one that took us to Saddam. We captured him the early morning hours, so say one o'clock in the morning on December 13th, 2003. I interrogated him about four o'clock in the morning, at six o'clock in the morning, well, about seven. He broke, said, Eric, I'm ready to go. I'll go. Let's go. Coincidentally, because my tour was that, that was when I was leaving. So if you read mm-hmm. my book, Mission Blacklist Number One, not a plug for my book, but of course, that was the last day I was in the country. Because of the way I did the interrogations, which was super not, not nice, but it was just, it was too partnering with the prisoners. Everyone outside of the Delta Force team I was assigned to, they really thought I was nuts. They were like, these prisoners are lying to Eric. So I wasn't allowed to stay, but the prisoner was immediately taken to the my team up in Crete, And that Delta Force team conducted the raid and the, the bodyguard took him to Saddam. I had actually left that morning. He was captured at 8 o'clock at night on December 13th, and I wow. left at 8 o'clock in the morning. It must have been a really gratifying moment when you heard that all of your hard work had led to the capture of Saddam. I mean, within the interrogation field, there's no bigger accomplishment than capturing, than capturing a war criminal, fugitive dictator. I would, I would say professionally, uh, that was the highest accomplishment I felt. Professionally, right? I don't know what a plumber does to feel really good or an electrician, but if you're an interrogator and that's the result, you feel very accomplished. Eric, you've shared a lot of fantastic information with me, and it's really a remarkable story on several levels. But obviously, there's only so much we can cover within the confines of a podcast. But you've written a book, you're also an inspirational public speaker, and you've now shared your experiences in terms of your communication approach in a way that people are using successfully in the private sector. So for anyone listening to this who would like to hear more about you and your experiences, where should those listeners go to get more information? Sure. So my book, the hard copy and the second edition is Mission Blacklist Number One. The Inside Story of the Search for Saddam Hussein. It was published by Harper Collins in 2008. And for the overseas title, it was just called Capturing Saddam. So it's the same exact book. For information about me, I can be reached at ericmaddox.com, my website. When I got out of the military and the Defense Intelligence Agency in 2014, people really wanted to hear this story. So I started doing keynote presentations. And then what I realized is people really like to know what is this level of communication that builds this level of trust and partnership. Last year, for example, I did 145 presentations and keynotes. I train negotiations. If you think about really tense communication situations, right? Sales. And I just love it. I I love this skill set that I had to learn. I love discussing it and teaching it. I, I love seeing other people succeed with it. So that's what I do. Think about sales 
leadership, negotiations. You're trying to build positive influence to get another person or organization to make a decision. Their decisions are based on, can I trust you? Can I trust you? People say, well, of course, look, I, I'm do good at my job at high level of integrity. And I say, yeah, those are all extremely important at the highest level of trust. If somebody wants to know, yeah, yeah, I know you're good at your job, but are you going to make this relationship about me? Or are you more going to make it about yourself? Because a lot of leaders, successful people, they want to make it about them. This communication teaches people how to make it actually about the client, the partner, the subordinate, the person on the other side. And that doesn't mean give them everything they want. It means function and communicate in a culture of seeking to understand. Thanks so much, Eric. It has been a real pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, later this month, I'll be talking with Jason Wright, an attorney in US servicemen who sacrificed his own military career to ensure he upheld the values of the bar and the US Constitution in order to make sure that even the wickedest of people, in his case, his client, 9-11 mastermind, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, are afforded a fair trial because justice is one of the pillars of our civilization. And in the next episode, I speak with attorney Martina Vandenberg, formerly of Human Rights Watch. She is founder and president of the Human Trafficking Legal Center. We discuss the Chinese government's suppression of the Uyghurs, plus all forms of exploitation and trafficking across the globe.